Poor choices made during teen years are probably not just a function of limited life experience, but a product of brain development as well. Brain imaging has shown that the activity of the frontal lobes in adults is much greater when processing emotions than it is in the teenage brain. This is significant because the frontal lobes are credited with controlling emotions, inhibiting behavior, and determining cause and effect and right and wrong. Equally interesting is the fact that teenage brains have greater activity than adults in the amygdala, a part of the limbic system. This area of the brain is involved in the flight or fight response and may contribute to impulsive decision making. New research aimed at better understanding the functions of the teenage brain is the topic of this clinician's roundtable on REACH MD XM233. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Atlanta is my guest, Dr. Gregory Burns of Emory University. Dr. Burns is an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Emory University and biomedical engineering at Georgia Institute of Technology. His work in functional imaging extends into several areas of computational and cognitive neuroscience, including novelty and reward processing, human social interaction, and neural economics. He is the author of a book entitled Satisfaction. Welcome, Dr. Burns. Thank you. Great to be here. Dr. Burns, other than the fact that it is really interesting, why study the teenage brain? Well, there are lots of reasons to study the teenage brain, but from a health perspective, probably the most compelling reason is if we look at what the leading cause of morbidity and mortality in teenagers is. Roughly greater than 30,000 kids each year die from suicide, homicide, and accidents. And according to the CDC, roughly two-thirds to three-quarters of those are probably preventable. And those three sources of injury and death are really, you know, they swamp every other cause of illness in young adults and teenagers. So from that perspective, you know, it really is a public health issue to study why kids um, suffer these, these fates. So understanding what's going on in their brains will help healthcare professionals to address those issues. That's right. So understanding what happens in the brain is our way of looking at decision-making. So all of these things that happen to kids originate in the brain. You want to look at dopamine levels in teens. Do dopamine levels differ during the teenage years compared to other ages? Well, we'd like to look at dopamine, although that's sometimes difficult to measure uh, with the technologies that we have. We know from various types of uh, studies in animals mainly that the dopamine system peaks in activity sometime in early adolescence to maybe late adolescence, and then it declines steadily throughout the rest of life. So whether this has anything to do with teenage decision-making or not is one of the key questions. How would dopamine levels influence behaviors and thoughts? Well, dopamine for a long time was thought to be a chemical that signaled pleasure or reward in the brain. More recent studies have implicated its role in decision-making, specifically risky decision-making. So we see dopamine released in activity in dopamine-related uh, regions when a person is about to make a decision that involves some element of uncertainty or risk. So it's a reasonable and good first target to understand risky decision-making, especially in teenagers. Right. You mentioned that this is difficult to study. It's difficult to study dopamine levels. Physically, how would you conduct a study like this? Well, the technologies that we have to study these things in the brain really center, there are two technologies. One is positron emission tomography, or PET, imaging. 
And that has been around for over 30 years. And that is a, a way to study specific chemicals in the brain. Uh, by administering radioactive tracers, we can see where they bind in the brain. That's the most direct way to measure dopamine, but there are problems with it, um, not the least of which is that the tracers are radioactive and, you know, we have to consider uh, the risk and benefit of, of doing that in essentially healthy kids. So that issue aside, we, we prefer to turn to more non-invasive technologies like magnetic resonance imaging or MRI. With MRI, we can use a few different techniques, the, the more common one being something called fMRI for functional magnetic resonance imaging, which lets us detect changes in blood flow to different parts of the brain. And we can use that coupled with various types of decision-making tasks while the person's in the scanner to figure out which parts of the brain are involved with different elements of a particular task. And then we can couple that with information that we know about where neurotransmitters act to try to piece the puzzle together. So you would piece it together in this way, that as you saw blood flow, you would, how would you know that that was dopamine? Okay, so we know that there are specific parts of the brain that dopamine go to. And dopamine is nice because there are very key structures which carry the bulk of the dopamine in the brain and where most of the receptors are. So it helps to know where to look. Now, that's not the only neurotransmitter acting in these areas. They also get information from other parts of the brain, the cortex, for example, the frontal lobes, and those are different neurotransmitters. But when we see blood flow changes there, we think that it's, it's actually the interaction between information coming from the cortex and information coming from the dopamine system. The puzzle, is, like I said, is complicated because you need to turn to information from other animals in which you can figure out exactly how those different components relate to the blood flow. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Gregory Burns, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University. Um, Dr. Burns, I'm curious, as you study these teenagers, will you screen for depression because that can have an impact on dopamine levels? Exactly. We absolutely screen for depression in all of the people that participate in our study, although we are specifically looking at this point at healthy, normal kids between the ages of 12 and 17, which is already a pretty big range um, considering the different elements of adolescence. Right. What behaviors are you curious about when looking at the teen brain? Well, this research is funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. So we're focusing not specifically on drug use, but elements of behavior that are often risk factors for that. And the thing that we're most interested in is risk-taking. So there are various forms of risk-taking. It can be driving fast. It can be drinking and driving, various other kinds of high-risk activities that you know, put kids at, at risk for accidents, basically. Now, those are things that happen out in the real world, so they're rather difficult to get a handle on to study scientifically. So what we do is, in a laboratory setting, we try to devise tasks for the kids to do that capture certain elements of risk-taking. And we have several of these, uh, but the most common way that we do it is to use something like a gambling task. So the kids come in and they have to make decisions, um, and this is for real money, so the, the decisions have consequences, and they have to trade off kind of 
the element of risk against safety. So they can choose to gamble money and potentially earn a lot, or they can take lesser amounts for essentially a sure payoff, but it's not as much as if they had gambled. Right. I know in some of your other research, you also looked at conformity issues, and that certainly would be interesting among the teens. Will that be something to look at? Yes. And that's another element of this research program, is looking at the effect of information that comes from peers or peer pressure. It can be phrased in a number of different ways. It can even be mass media. We know that people are susceptible or they tend to follow their peers or even authority figures. What we don't know is how that information actually gets into the brain and mixes in with value systems. So we're trying to combine these approaches by looking at the effects of information coming from peers coupled with things like a gambling task to see how peer information mixes with the risk information and how that changes um, activity in the dopamine system. Is there a large body of research of these same behaviors in adults that you can compare your results with to see if it makes a difference that these are teenagers performing the tasks? There is a small but growing uh, body of work in neuroeconomics that looks at uh, what happens in the brain when people make risky decisions. There are probably only one or two studies that have looked at the differences between kids and adults. So it's, it's too early to draw conclusions from that. Now, my personal feeling about this is that the difference between kids and adults is probably less interesting than the difference between all kids or all adults. So what I mean by that is the thing that's of interest from a public health perspective is identifying kids who are susceptible or at risk for making bad decisions. Yeah, we could probably just go on the evidence that we already have and know the brains are different, the behaviors are different, but you're more interested in finding out uh, differences among. Exactly. Yes. And and who do you want to identify? What what would you, how would you like to see this break down? Well, I think the most interesting result would be identifying characteristics of a, a teenage brain and specifically that is a high sensation seeker, someone who is particularly drawn to novelty and risk-taking, and identifying what is the biological uh, difference between that person and the person who is more cautious, who has uh, a more forward-thinking thought process about long-term consequences. The first task is to identify if this is biologically mediated. And not to be unfair, but but pulling that into the realm of practicality, we're not going to start giving functional MRIs to our teens uh, routinely to find out who has uh, um, these different kinds of functioning in their brains. How do you see that, or have you thought about how this would be practically applied? Well, you might actually do that, although it seems a little bit far-fetched that we would start scanning our kids uh, indiscriminately. I think that's really an issue of costs and benefits. As far as MRI goes, there's minimal risks to it. It's a medical procedure. But the real issue is what is the benefit for it. So there are plenty of kids, if not most kids, who go through some period uh, during their adolescence, you know, which, as you mentioned, they might be depressed, or they go through a period of experimentation, it would be nice to know amongst those kids who are the ones who are really at risk for, for something bad happening to. And if there's a biological reason for it, you could potentially identify 
or uh, target specific types of therapy to it, whether it's uh, psychiatric therapy. That could be a bit extreme, but it could be as simple as uh, behavioral interventions. And maybe pharmacological intervention? Definitely possible. Well, this research will certainly be fascinating and a uh, good addition to what we know about the functioning of the human brain. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Gregory Burns, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.